Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. This time of the year when you mention the name Joseph, <laughs> there usually is some type of a recognition of a Joseph. Uh, most people in a society like ours, although it would be different in Israel, in a society like ours, they think of Joseph and then they think of Mary. Or like we like to say, Yosef and Miriam, they're Hebrew names. And today I do want to talk about Joseph, but not the one that we read about in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I want to talk about Yosef, Joseph, and not the one that's sitting over there. <laughs> but I want to talk about Joseph from the uh, Torah, from Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis. Most of us are familiar with his story uh, we'll tap into some of it if we can here. Uh, it's a, a lengthy story. Uh, it, it covers basically from the middle of Genesis all the way to the end of Genesis into chapter 1 of Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, where it says in, in uh, Exodus chapter 1 that a new pharaoh arose, a new king arose, and then it mentions who did not know Joseph. But in our text, in Genesis chapter 37, I'm going to read a couple of verses to you uh, to begin with. Verse 2 of Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis chapter 37. It says, Yosef, Joseph, and notice this next statement, being 17 years old. Is there anyone here who's 17, by the way? If, is there anyone who is not? Would you please stand? <laughs> Anyone else at 17? Okay. Michael, are you 17? Could you stand, please? Now, the text tells us, thank you, keep standing just for a moment. It says Joseph was 17 years old. Here are some examples here of 17-year-olds. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you afterwards for reward. <laughs> There's two examples of a 17-year-old, and that helps us somehow. Maybe you remember when you were 17, or perhaps I know the children have been dis dismissed already. They haven't got to the plateau of 17. But Joseph was 17 years old, it says. He was 17 years old, and he was feeding the flock with his brothers. This is Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And then it says this, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Here's this 17-year-old bringing a bad report about his brothers. It doesn't say, by the way, that his report was wrong. It doesn't say that his report was evil. 
it says that he brought a bad report. In other words, he told, he told his father exactly how his brothers were behaving. <laughs> verse 3 is a key verse for us. Now Israel, Israel is also the biblical name for Jacob. And at times you can say Beit Yisrael, the house of Israel. You can say Beit Yaakov, the house of Jacob. And at times it refers to the same exact thing to people of Israel. But in this case, Israel refers to this one individual. His name was Jacob or Yaakov. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because Joseph was the son of his old age. Now, I don't know how you do with family things. I'm not sure how we all do with that. But if you had never known the story of Joseph and you read that line, again, let me read it to you. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. You might think, think can I say it in Hebrew? Uh-oh. There's going to be a problem here. And there was. It wasn't distinctly because of uh, the connection between Yaakov or Israel and Joseph, but there was a problem there between Joseph and his brothers. And also, Joseph's father, Jacob, had a special love for Joseph. And it tells us why, and I appreciate the text. How many appreciate the Word of God? How many appreciate the Scripture? I do, deeply. But it tells us why he had this special connection with Joseph. He also had it with Benjamin, by the way. It says because he was the son of his old age. And it says in the next phrase in Genesis chapter 32, verse 3, also he made Joseph, he made him a ketonet pasim, it says in Hebrew. He made him a tunic, a coat, however your translation says, of many colors, ketonet pasim. And this phrase doesn't really occur in other places, so we're relegated to trying to figure out exactly what does ketonet pasim means. What does that mean? At the very least, it means that there were some different use to it, perhaps stripes, some say. But he made this, he made Joseph a ketonet, it says in Hebrew. The word ketonet, the Hebrew word ketonet, translates to a Latin word that we're probably all familiar with. And I'll say it, the Latin, tunica. How many know what tunica means? <laughs> a tunic. He made Joseph a tunic. I've had the privilege to be in Egypt in the past and spend time in Egypt. And I, 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 you know, I was taken back when I got to Egypt, although I had seen something similar in Israel. But I was taken back when I saw so many Egyptians, mainly farmer types, wearing a long tunic. They call it a galabiya or jalabiya. Wearing a long tunic that it went all the way down to the to the to the ground, and all the way out to here, extended, and they wore a turban, turban with it. And surprisingly, that type of dress or that type of clothing in a hot place like Egypt is very suitable. It's worn loosely. In other words, not tight fitting. The, the galabia, this type of tunic that's uh, common in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt, is worn loosely. 
And it's comfortable. Underneath it will be some uh, other garments that they'll be wearing, light, light garments, but they'll be wearing. And also, in the desert areas, as some of you are familiar with this, you may be even, may even be from a desert area, it can get pretty chilly at night, quite chilly. I've experienced that camping out in the Sinai Peninsula. Could get quite chilly, actually cold. One of my camp trips there years ago, I took with me, uh, I took a sleeping bag with me, and I had been told that it gets chilly at night, and I'm from the north of the United States. What's the other term for somebody from the north? Is it a Yankee or something like that? <laughs> you know, I'm from the north, and I was used to cool weather, but when I got to Egypt, and I got down to the Sinai Peninsula, and I was camping there, I had taken a down sleeping bag, and during the day, I was like, I'm, not, I'm never going to use this. It's hot. I was very happy I had it at night. I was very happy. Actually, I had one up on the people I was camping with because it was useful. It got cool enough at night that I was glad I had something. Now, Joseph's Ketonet, as it's called, Ketonet Pasim, Joseph's Ketonet Pasim was very useful for Joseph. It was useful in the daytime and it was useful at the nighttime, although the text doesn't tell us very much about that. But that type of a garment would be useful throughout the whole day, 24-7. And this tunic that Jacob made for Joseph was something very noticeable to others. It had the distinct term of being a ketonic pasim, whatever that means, but some type of striped garment, some type of multicolored garment, and it's been translated in different ways. But it was distinctive and noticeable. And you know who could notice the tunic probably above all? Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers. Now, to my way of thinking, and perhaps you would agree with this, there are some messianic parallels here concerning our clothing, our dress. Who are we clothed with? We should be clothed with Yeshua the Messiah and his righteousness. And committed Messianic believers, believers in the Messiah, another term for that is Messianic believers, we view Yeshua as a prize. We view him as a reason to rejoice. And, and perhaps that's you today. Maybe you rejoice in knowing Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, as your Lord and Savior. And there's a lot of reason to rejoice and if we're clothed with him by that, and we'll talk a little more about this as we press on here this morning. But if we're really clothed with the Messiah, there's a certain distinction that comes to our lives. And that clothing, if you follow the example that I'm using here, that clothing goes with us at the workplace where we're clothed with Messiah. We're clothed with Messiah in our home life. We're clothed with Messiah as we're out and about in this world. We're to be clothed with Messiah. We're to make sure that we are covered with his righteousness. He is the Lord, our righteousness. We're clothed with him. And there's much more to say about this, and it's surprising, surprising just how much Scripture talks about being clothed with various things. In the New Covenant, there's a two-word phrase that's used uh, in many translations. It says this, it says, Put on the Lord Yeshua. It says, put on the garments 
of praise. It says, put on the, uh, the, the weapons of our warfare, and they're not carnal. So let's continue thinking about this a little more. There's Joseph and his brothers. His father, Jacob, has a special love for Joseph, gives Joseph a special multicolored katona pasim, it's called in Hebrew, a, a garment, this, this tunic-type thing that's very visible and recognizable to those around, including the brothers. Frankly, it's a recipe for some stress and strife, and that's what happens. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 4, the text continues, but when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated Joseph. They hated Joseph, and they could not speak peaceably to him. They hated Joseph. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. You realize that our speech reveals a lot about us, and this is not a message about conversational speech. But the things that come out of our mouth can be very revealing about us. It's so important, and there are some real inspirations for me in this congregation that try to speak positively, scripturally positive, not weird confessional stuff, but scriptural confession. Speak positively about things. In Joseph's case, his brothers, it says, they couldn't speak peaceably to him at all. And if you're familiar with what happens with Joseph, his life from here on out goes down this pathway that's almost unimaginable. It contrasts so greatly with the love and the example of love he has with his ketone pasim versus what his brothers end up doing to him. What a contrast there is with the love that he sees from his father and the, the anger and in this case, it says they couldn't speak peaceably to him that he feels from his brothers. Just think about if you were in that situation, how that would impact you personally. Can you imagine how that impacted Joseph? We're introduced to him in the text as we read before, and two people were nice enough to stand up. He's 17 years old. How did you deal with things and challenges and tensions that came into your life when you were 17 years old? Frankly, I wasn't even a believer at that time. Not even close. And there's Joseph. The text unwinds. It keeps going forward, and, and issue after issue comes forward in that text and what Joseph goes through. And you know, as Joseph wore his tunic, later on the text will tell us that they removed the tunic from him. The very thing his father gave it to him, they take it away from him. As they're selling him into bondage, they take away that tunic from him. Friends, if you're clothed with Messiah in your life and you're representing him, there may be many around you that don't really like it. Some of you have experienced that already in your lives. People at your home, in your family, maybe the workplace, in the society around you, they may not like it so much that you represent Messiah, that you're clothed with the Messiah. They may not like that. 
They may not like what you stand for. They may not like who you represent. They may not like the, the way you express yourself because you, you don't go in the ways of the world because we're not of the world. We may be in the world, but we're not really of the world. As King David said in Tehillim and Psalms, he said, the, this world is not my home. He says, I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your eyes from me, Lord. I'm a stranger. And in fact, if we get too comfortable in this world, we have to be careful because we become more worldly than we become godly. So as Joseph cloaked himself with that gift of his father, there was also something Joseph got from that gift. His brothers could see, and they may not have appreciated the fact that Yaakov Jacob had given Joseph this special gift, and they didn't get one. At least the text never says that they did. But Joseph could look at that. He could see that ketone pasim, this special coat. He could look at it, and it reminded him of some things. And how important these reminders must have been as hard times came into Joseph's life. He was reminded as he looked at that ketonet, that tunic, he was reminded of the generous heart of his father. His father had given that to him. He was reminded of also that he was important to his father and special to his father. And he was also reminded that his father loved him and loved him dearly. I think you can see how applicable that is for you and me if we're clothed with his righteousness, the Lord's righteousness, if we have put on Messiah Yeshua in our life. There are some biblical applications. Let me share a couple with you from the book of Galatians, for example, chapter 3. There are some things that transfer to us from the story of Yosef. Galatians 3.26. I'm going to read it from the complete Jewish Bible version. It says, for in union with the Messiah, you are all children of God through this trusting faithfulness. And then it says this in verse 27 of Galatians chapter 3. Because as many of you as were immersed into the Messiah, you have clothed yourselves with Yeshua, with the Messiah. What are you wearing today, spiritually? Are you clothed with the Messiah? It says, as many of you as were immersed into the Messiah... If you're really his, you have clothed yourself with the Messiah. And Paul, Rav Shaul, Paul the Apostle also says in Romans chapter 13, he wrote this to the believers in Rome, beginning with verse 11. He says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Verse 12 of Romans 13, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and notice the next statement, let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and darkness and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. And then it says this again, but put on the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Put on the Lord Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. 
and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. How much provision for the flesh should we make? The answer is a two-letter word, no. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And if we are clothed with the Messiah, really comparable to that beautiful cloak that, or tunic that Joseph received from his father, if we're clothed with the Messiah and we're trusting in Yeshua, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, and I hope that describes you today. And I hope there's no doubt about it in your life. Who is your Lord? Who is your Savior? And who you're following? And if we're clothed with him, with the Messiah Yeshua, and we're trusting him as Lord and trusting him as Savior, we will show forth through our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. We will start to show forth in life increasing amounts of godly actions. You know what? Our words also will be cleaned up. I won't ask for a show of hands. I can only reflect on my own life. But how many of us have found a cleansing process? The, the big uh, theological term is a sanctification process going on in our lives since we came to know Yeshua or since he mercifully grabbed us out of the pit of hell, most of us. In some cases, you see friends that you haven't seen in a while, and in, in, in the waylay, you come to know the Lord, and they, they see you, and they don't hardly recognize you. You don't act like you used to act. You act in a better way. You act in a way to please your Heavenly Father, and that's your goal in life, to do His will. Because not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. A lot of people out there saying the words. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father is what Yeshua said. That's putting on Messiah when we're committed to do the will of God, even to the point of denying our own fleshly lusts and desires so that we might follow him. Colossians 3 verse 12 also talks about putting on and putting on the character traits, the very things I've just been referencing. Colossians 3 beginning with verse 12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, Put on humility, put on meekness, put on long-suffering, bearing with one another, and notice this next phrase, please. You talk about a challenge and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgive them. I've found in my own life, and you probably have too, that if you don't forgive someone, if you don't, you are attached to them. You're tethered to them as long as you're keeping unforgiveness as a primary motivator in your life. You're attached to them. You could be in Florida and they can be in Alaska. If you haven't forgiven them, you are attached to them. You're tethered to them. Your thoughts will go to them. Your heart will go to them. How merciful of God to give us his good instruction, his good truth, his good teaching. It says, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive one another. Even as Messiah forgave you.
How many of you are thankful today for a Messiah that forgives us? I am. My sins are too many. He's still working with me. I'm a whip, a work in progress. It says, so also, even as Messiah forgave you, so also must you do. And then verse 14 is a powerful statement. But above all these things, again, we see the phrase, this two-word phrase, put on, as the New King James Version says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, the bond of completeness. it's, It's the bow on top of everything. It's the bond of completeness, the fullness of Messiah. There it is. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Now, if we will willingly identify with Yeshua in our lives, and I hope that describes you today, you are willingly identifying with him at your workplace, at your education place, uh, in your home. You're willingly identifying with him. And you're identifying with him in his death, in his burial. And before there's resurrection power, there has to be death and burial. Yeshua set the example for us. If you're identifying with him, his resurrection power is at work in your life. He's changing you from glory to glory and faith to faith, as Rav Shavu Paul the Apostle said. You're not the same as you used to be, and you're not going to be the same in the future because he's at work in your life, and it's a good work, and he who has begun that good work is going to complete it onto the day of Messiah, and hallelujah for that. He's not going to leave you by the wayside, but hold on a second. Are you going to leave him by the wayside? That's a bigger question. Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, is it, there's one, uh, one, one of several passages in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant, several passages that seem to have been ancient liturgy. By that, it seems that the ancient believers, the first century believers, would repeat those things just like we did this morning as we repeated the Shema, as Carl led us in the liturgy, and the Ve'ahavta, the liturgy part, the repetition part. There are several verses, several sections of Scripture that seem to have, and, and your Bible may even show you this. If you look carefully at your English Bible, it may offset these passages as if to say these were things that were pronounced and stated, you know, communally they were professed. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This is a faithful saying. And then it says this. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, (laughs) he remains faithful. If we are are faithless, that doesn't change his faithfulness at all. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Blessed be his name. He remains faithful. He can't deny his own nature. That's who he is. He's faithful. He's probably been very faithful to you at times in your life when you've called out to him. He's probably heard your prayers in the secret place. If you pray in secret, he will reward you openly, as he promised. 
And as we are clothed with Messiah Yeshua, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us no matter what we experience in life. If we have that special ketonet on us of Messiah, and when we go through hard times, we know that he has not forsaken us. He promised, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I suggest again, the biggest issue in a society like ours is us leaving him, leaving him by the wayside as we press on and do our own thing. So how do we know, though, that he really loves us? We know because he sent his son, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Hereby perceive we the love of God, First Yohanan says, First John says. We know because he sent his son, if you ever doubt God loves you, think about the tree, the execution stake, the cross, and think about the price that was paid for you before you were even born. That's how much God loves you. He made provision for us before we were even born. That's how great his love is. What a gift it is also to us that ultimately God's plan and purpose for us, and I'm going to say this beautiful word, his plan and purpose for us includes what we say in English as heaven. How many like the word heaven? Anybody besides me? I kind of like that word. (laughs) And if we're clothed with our Messiah... And Yeshua truly is Lord of our lives. And we're doing his will, not just calling our will his will, but we're really doing his will. There is a great thing ahead for us. Yes, we can call it heaven, but there's no way to describe it. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard what great things God has stored up for those who love him, those who persevere in this life. And if we're dying to our selfish ways and we're allowing his ways to be worked through us, there's this tremendous heavenly work going on inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, there are those who don't think they need to be clothed with Yeshua, the Messiah, and his righteousness. They just don't think they need it. They don't think they need him. You know, they don't need to be clothed with him. They feel like they don't need to be immersed with Yeshua. They feel like they don't need to really do what the Scripture says. They don't really need all that. You know, they they think they are sufficient in themselves to face this great eternity that lies out there for every human being. They think their sufficiency is in themselves. I don't need Yeshua, they say, deep inside of themselves. I don't need Yeshua because I have me, they say. I have my own goodness. I have my own wisdom. You know, I'm a well-educated person, they say. I have all these things. I'm from the right lineage. And it goes on and on and on. Oh, I'm so clever, I can outwit God. When it's all said and done, he's going to make a special place for me because I'm so clever, smart, and have the right lineage. I don't really need to be clothed with Messiah. I have me. And I'm special. There's special exoneration for me. 
You know what the cross tells us? There is not the only special exoneration for us is that cross of Yeshua the Messiah. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it won't be because of your, your righteousness or your wisdom or your anything. You know what? It'll be because of him and what he did for us, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord our righteousness and what he did. But this idea that, hey, you know, I really don't need God's provision. I have me and all my greatness. I have me, you know, being facetious here. That's how people think. But that's not a new thought to 21st century America. I want to remind you, we won't be able to go through the whole passage, but a part of it today. What's recorded in Matatiahu, Matthew chapter 22? I'm just going to read a few verses, beginning with verse 9. The scenario is a king is having a big wedding feast. <laughs> and he decides he's going to invite everyone. Everyone's invited. He sends his servants out to tell everyone, come on, come on, come on. It's a big banquet for you, waiting you. We pick up the narrative. You're welcome to read all the chapter in Matthew 22. Carl mentioned it this morning in verse 9. Go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants of the king, they went out into the highways, and they gathered together all of whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11 of Matthew 22 continues. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to that man, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And that man without the wedding garment, it says he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's well known, it's well known that our wedding practices today in 21st century America are very different from wedding practices back in the first century. 2,000 years ago, very different. Sure, the wedding's the same, people are getting married. But it's very different, especially a royal wedding. This was a very wealthy man having a wedding ceremony and inviting everyone to come. And one of the big differences back then, we're told by anthropologists, one of the big differences was that a wealthy man back in the first century who invites all the guests, you know what that wealthy man would do? He'd give everyone the correct clothing. It would be similar. There would be no one in that wedding hall that didn't have the correct clothing. Usually it was a white garment to signify purity. So he'd give everyone that. And there were reasons why he did that, because the wealthy king was wealthy enough to provide that for everyone. And it said to everyone who was invited, 
wow, this king, he's got a lot going on here. He's done pretty well for himself. This rich man doing this wedding, he's done well for himself. Look, he's provided for all of us. And other things that they would do, first century weddings, very interesting, a little different than what we would do. As the king provided the clothing for everyone so everyone could come and be comfortable and be in accord with what the king wanted, he was shown his generosity. He was also wanting to uphold regal standards, the standards of a rich man or a king. He didn't want everyone coming in, doing their own thing, and looking like they just got blown in by the wind. After all, this is a royal wedding. Royal subjects, wealthy people. And so he made sure that Everyone looked alike. Everyone was provided for. He would give an invitation to everyone. The wealthier he was, the more he would invite anyone. There might have been some that he didn't want, but he'd invite them. Come in. Especially if he was the ruler over a locale. He didn't want to exclude anyone. Have you ever been excluded from a wedding and been hurt? Probably you have. Or some type of a gathering? Probably you have. But that wealthy king, that wealthy man said, no, come. A hasmanan invitation to everyone to come. And I'll give you the clothing you need. You just come. And he would lavish on them there. But when someone showed up that didn't put on the garment that the king required, but tried to mix in, first of all, it was obvious to the sight of the king that that person wasn't dressed in the right garments. It was obvious. And then secondarily, it began to show, or at least the king could de derive the idea that the person disregarded the king's authority. Why didn't you wear the right garments? It would also show that the person preferred to do their own thing rather than the king's thing, the, their own will rather than the king's will. It could also show that they didn't respect the power of the king or the authority of the king or the word of the king or the will of the king. And it also showed, and probably worse of all, that they didn't fear the king. I mean, I, I, you show up on your own stead wearing your own garments when it's all been provided for you and you, and you fly in the face of that and you come in in your own garments. It says to the king, I don't fear you. I'm going to do my thing. They would be saying to the king, in essence, your will really doesn't matter. I'm going to do mine. They're saying also, I'm kind of special. I don't need to be like everyone else. They're also saying, I want the king to bow to me and my ideas, not me to the king. And you can see where this leads. It's not really good. Did you notice in the parable, though, Thou, the, the improperly dressed guest was pointed out by the king and, and spoken to by the king. And did you notice how he responded? Let me remind you. First of all, he was greeted by the king. The improperly dressed man was greeted by the king in a friendly way. In Matthew 22, verse 11, it says, But when the king came in to see the guest, all the guests there, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So the king said to him, notice how he addresses him, friend. 
as the New King James says, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? He gives him a chance to explain himself, but it's so indicative. And he, the guest, was speechless. There was no excuse because the king had provided everything from the invitation to the servants, bringing them in, to the clothing, to the food, the banquet hall, everything was provided. The guest had no excuse. Neither will any human being have an excuse when it comes to the day of judgment. Not a single excuse will fly. It's not going to work. We're not more clever than God. Our will is not better than God's will. Our ways are not better than God's ways. There will be no excuses. I know some people think, hey, I'm going to get away with all this. I've actually heard, and I've been in this for decades now, I've actually heard people on more than one occasion tell me, you know what, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do, and just before I die, I'm going to repent. How many think that's not a good way to approach life? Because tomorrow is not promised to you, and today could be the day. Then what will you do? What excuse will you lift your arms to God and make an excuse? Why you didn't do as well? Why you didn't receive him? You'll be without excuse. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, beginning with verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, sins, iniquities, made us alive together with Messiah, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And for we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, and what a difficult chapter Romans 2 is. Said, do you despise, do you despise the riches of his goodness? Do you remember how Joseph's brothers despised him? Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you despise that? Rob Shul says to the first century audience of the Romans, and by application to us. In the parable of the wedding guest, as we conclude here today, the outcome that was afforded the improperly dressed guest is quite strong. Do you remember? Let me read it to you again. Matthew 22, verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. And this next statement is a Hebraism, but it also says a lot. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the theological question then became, was the king mean? I mean, was this king the one who threw this great wedding feast? Was he too harsh? Was he, you know, unfair? Was he inconsiderate? The answer is an emphatic no. He was not. He had provided everything from the invitation to the place where they were to meet. All the food, everything, all good things had been given, even the clothing that they were to wear. So he was not. And we've been provided great things by the Lord. Second Peter chapter 1 says, verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness. And they'll, they'll make excuses about things. He's provided everything for us. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through those or through these you may be partakers of what the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And in the parable, in the parable the king gave an invitation. He provided the proper clothing as we've mentioned. He, he, he prepared the room the food, the king was generous, the king was open-hearted, the king was receptive, all the traits that the wealthy king exhibited. And yet there was this one who said, no, I'm doing it my way. I'm going to be clothed like I want to. I'm going to conduct myself the way I want to. No, I don't need to listen to the king. that guest would not fully submit to the will of the Lord, would not. Would not fully submit to the ways of the Lord, would not. Did their own thing, only did a partial submission. And a lot of people, we must be careful that we're just not partially submitted to the Lord, like he's, he's partially Lord of our lives. I don't know what kind of spiritual struggle you go through when you're walking the Lord, but I know one of the issues that I always deal with is how to get deeper and deeper into lordship, his lordship over all areas of my life. And frankly, it's a challenge at times, especially in this evil and corrupt society. This world at the debauchery, and it's, it's challenging. There are many assaults on our thinking, on our mind, on our physical beings. I love what the Septuagint translation says in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4. You know what it says? Ye shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and ye shall hear his voice and attach yourselves to him. Deuteronomy 13, 4 from the Septuagint version. And Matthew 6, 33, you probably know it by heart, says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. But it didn't stop there, by the way. It says, and his righteousness. Then all the other things will be added to you. Now, don't be fooled. This world has a plan for your life. And can I say in the colloquialism, <laughs> this world has a plan for your life, and can I say it in the colloquial, it ain't good. 
It's not good what the world has planned for you, what the world would bring into your life. It's not good. This world would strip you, strip you of your faith in Yeshua. This world would try to help you to live according to its ways. This world would want you to succumb to all the fleshly desires you can wrap your arms around. And this world would tell you that there is no God. This world may tell you that there's no judgment day. This world will tell you, well, you're okay. You're going to get by. You know what? None of that's true. This world, we should be proclaiming in this world that Yeshua is the Lord. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the last thing with Joseph back in Genesis 37, verse 23. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, he was sent to check on them. It came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, you know what they did? That they stripped Joseph of his tunic. How symbolic, emblematic is that? He came to them, Joseph came to them, and they stripped the tunic away. And then it describes the tunic just so it's it's clear that it's the very one that Jacob had given to him. The tunic of many colors. And what was Joseph doing with it? That was on him. He was wearing that tunic. Are you wearing Messiah Yeshua in your life? Are you clothed with his righteousness in your life? The world would strip that from you and put some other shmata uh, garment on you. Friends, the coat we wear in life is readily seen by the eyes that are looking at us and even more so by the eyes of the Lord. He knows what we're clothed with. He knows. Now, There is some good news here, and we're going to conclude with this passage. Because the the parable about the marriage guest, it, it just falls through all the way up into the book of Revelation. And listen to this text here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. You know what servants of God do? They praise God. They give glory to God. They honor God. They worship the Lord. Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And then verse 6 of Revelation 19 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Will you pray with me, please?
please just take a moment before the Lord, your own life. Now think about your neighbor. This is not the time for that, but your own life. How you've been conducting yourself. Is he truly your Lord? Are you doing your own thing and think that your garments are going to be acceptable? Ask him to come into a new way into your heart and life. Ask him. Ask him. If you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He's not going to turn you away when you come to him with a sincere Anishbarlev, a broken heart. He's not going to cast you off. He loves you today. He's shown his love by sending Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah for you. Father, we praise you this morning. Thank you for so great a provision that you provided even the very garments that we need to be partakers in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Adonai Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Lord, I pray for each person here. You know what each of us might be going through. You know the struggles we face. You know the blessings that you've poured out on us. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would lead and guide, direct, that as we enter into this Hanukkah season, this time of dedication and rededication, Lord, that that would be a reality in our lives, not just some quaint words, but a reality. Thank you for each person hearing these words. Thank you for your work you're doing in each heart. And thank you for the promise that you will complete it. And that it might not yet appear what we'll be like, but we know that when Messiah comes, we're going to be like him. Whatever that means to you, O Lord, so be it for each of us. Thank you, Lord. Ask these things according to the name, the merit of Yeshua, our righteousness. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.